turn there in your own Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 tonight. Genesis chapter 4. And you know, this is the beginning, toward the beginning of the year. And if you're like me, the beginning of the year, you start at the beginning of the Bible again. And the last couple of weeks as I've been going through Genesis and reading the story of Cain and Abel, something stirred in me, a thought stirred in me that was actually ignited by Alex, Alex in church, Alex Suarez. He texted me a few times some comments about that the word, you know, sin and sin offering are the same, and that when we look at this story of Cain and Abel, it can really transform the way we read it if um, we understand that truth. And he sent me a a Bible translation that translated Genesis 4-7 differently than most translations translate it. And that really brought me down a path of looking at this scripture more in depth. So we're going to look at the, the first half of the story of Cain and Abel tonight. And we're going to, toward the end of the sermon, we're going to hone in there on verse 7 of chapter 4. So let's just jump in and let's read the first seven chapters of Genesis Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from Yahweh. Uh, Cain simply means acquired. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Yahweh, Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and Yahweh respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door." And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. All right. Well, let me set the stage for what is going on here. Of course, right before this story in Genesis 4 is the story of the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden in Genesis 3. We're told of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God's one prohibition, right? What is God's one prohibition? You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? But we know Eve was deceived by the serpent, and she ate the fruit. And Adam failed to protect his wife and willingly sinned by also eating the fruit. And after that, we're told how they tried to hide from God when they heard him walking in the cool of the day. Remember that? They knew they were naked, and they felt ashamed to be in God's presence. After being confronted by God... We see that they failed to truly own their sin as sin, and they failed to repent. Next, we're told of the curse God gave, as well as the promise that Eve one day would have a son who would crush the head of the serpent who had just deceived her. And after those curses, and after the promise of the coming seed from from her her, uh, fruit, from her body, Genesis 3, it ends like this. Let's pick up Genesis 3, verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand 
and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so this is, happens literally very soon after Adam and Eve are created. Uh, a day or, or two into the story is when they sin. And so, you know, at this time in life, Adam and Eve, we could say they're zero years old, even though they probably were created like having, you know, the, the maturity of maybe a 20 or 30 year old. At this time, they're zero years old, right? And so the beginning of Cain and Abel begins immediately after this verse. And at the end of the story of Cain and Abel, after Cain kills Abel, we're told that they were living still in the land of Eden at that time. They simply weren't in the garden, but they are likely very near the garden. So the setting of the story of Cain and Abel is that Adam, Eve, and all of their descendants are living outside of the garden gates in the land of Eden. Now Genesis 3.21 says that God made tunics of skin for Adam and Eve after they sinned and after he gave them the promise. Now, how do you get skin? You get skin by skinning an animal, right? That entails the animal's death. And so God, we see, is the first one in Scripture to enact an animal sacrifice. The first death occurs at the hands of God, so the nakedness of Adam and Eve could be covered, and so they could stand before him again without shame. In fact, the word tunic here can also just be translated as coat or robe. The idea is not that they're naked, um, is not just that their nakedness is covered, but that a sense of righteous rule is being restored to them when they are covered. In fact, the next time we see the, the word for, for, for tunic here, it's used for the robe that um, Jacob gave Joseph. It's a robe of authority. It's a robe of priesthood. In fact, we don't see this word for tunic again until we get to the book of Exodus and Leviticus, which is talking about the priestly garments. So that's what God is robing them in. It's not like you see them sometimes, I think, in sort of this kind of caveman-esque tunic. No, this is a robe of authority that God is restoring to Adam and Eve. Remember, God had told Adam that he would die, he would surely die the day he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God in his grace showed Adam that a substitute would instead die the death that he deserved. So the day he deserved to die, an innocent spotless animal from the garden took his place. A picture of Jesus Christ taking our place. The animal bore the penalty for Adam's sin, which is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. But that wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't just that the animal bore the penalty of Adam's sin, but also Adam was robed in the spotless and blemishless skin of that animal. In a sense, he is robed in righteousness. And so he could then come out from behind the shrubs, no longer be ashamed, and walk again with God. He could again take up the priestly duty 
he had been given by God to guard and to keep and then to have dominion over the world. Well, in the very next story, we see Adam and Eve's children presenting sacrifices to God. Why are they doing that? Well, I'm sure Adam and Eve taught them how to offer these sacrifices as they're growing up. God had set up the sacrificial system, and they kept it going. Many scholars believe this would have been part of their worship on the Sabbath when they rested, that they would have preached to each other about the seed of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. They would encourage one another with this powerful promise, and then they would offer sacrifice to God, being assured that a sinless substitute would take away all their sins, and not only that, but that he would restore righteousness to them. And Genesis 4.4 says that God would respond to their faith-filled worship. In fact, it says that he respected, right, Abel's faith-filled worship, but he did not respect Cain and his faithless worship. Other translations put it like this, that God had regard, that God looked with favor on Abel's offering. Well, how would they know that God was respecting their offerings? Many uh, through history, Christians through history, have assumed that God gave some sort of visible acceptance to the sacrifices that were offered. For instance, we know when the priestly ministry in the tabernacle began that heavenly fire came down and consumed the sacrifices. Look at Leviticus 9.24. And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Right? Yes, the Lord has respected the offering. We also see heavenly fire consume the sacrifices in the story of Samson's parents, and also in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel when he's dealing with the false prophets of Baal, how no fire from heaven uh, accepts their sacrifice, but Yahweh accepts Elijah's sacrifice by burning it all up, right? So it seems that the way Abel knew his sacrifice was accepted and Cain knew his was rejected is because Abel's sacrifice had either been eaten up by the divine fiery glory or there had been some other sign to communicate that God respected the one that was the faithful sacrifice and, the one that was, and, and did not respect the one that wasn't. Now, the church reformers in the 16th century um, they loved uh, this story, and they, they, they talked about um, how God was just setting up the preaching of the gospel here. One, one reformer named uh, David uh, Catraeus, he wrote this. He said, When Abel saw that the lamb had been consumed, indeed by a fire divinely kindled, he understood that it signified a different lamb, namely the coming seed. When Abel offered the lamb that was consumed by heavenly flames, he was admonished by this spectacle so that by faith he applied the promised benefits of the Messiah to himself. He thus nourished and strengthened his faith. And this is how they talked about the worship of Adam and Eve and their family is that it was done as an act of faith in the coming seed who would crush the serpent's head. And they knew that this would be a sinless substitute for their sin. Well, what other clues might, we, might there be in the text about the setting of these two sacrifices of Cain and Abel? We've already seen that they are offered in the land of Eden. That's what the end of the story tells us. 
We've seen that they are offered because God and their parents had taught them about the purpose of the sacrifice and the promise God had given. We've seen that God gave some kind of tangible response to the sacrifice. Are there any other details we can know? I think one more detail we can glean from the text is that there are likely many other people who are participating in these worship services. For the text tells us how old Cain and Abel were at the time of this offering, or around how old they were at the time of this offering. So let's look at how the story ends. The last verse, I believe, in chapter 4, Genesis 4.25, says this. This is after Abel is dead. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So how does that tell us how old uh, Cain and Abel likely were at the time of these sacrifices? Well, a few verses later, let's read it. It tells us um, how old Adam was when he had Seth. Genesis 5.3 And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam and Eve, were told, had been living outside the gates of Eden for 130 years. <laughs> In fact, the Septuagint, which I think may very well carry the correct chronology of the early chapters of Genesis, says that Adam was 230 years old when he had uh, Seth. And we're told later in Genesis um, that Adam lived to be 930 years old. That's in uh, Genesis 5. So, the age of childbearing, we're also told at that time, lasted very long. So, in fact, you know how old Noah was when he had Shem, Ham, Ham and Japheth? He was 500 years old. And so, I'm sure that after Adam had received the gospel promise that, a, that you know, uh, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, and he had received the sign from God that his sin had been dealt with and righteousness had been restored, the slain sacrifice, I'm sure when he's restored in that place of, of uh, acceptance with God again, he got busy with Eve fulfilling the first command God gave them, which was what? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. So I can imagine in that first one or two hundred years in Eden that they had many children. And maybe many after that, up to like 500 years old, like Noah did. It also seems that it wasn't until 130 or 230 uh, years of living in Eden that the first unfaithful act of sacrifice is offered. So they're faithfully worshiping for either 130 years or 230 years until this first unfaithful act of worship occurs. We might call it a liturgical coup. Something we're going to look at a little bit more in a minute. But let's think of how large the family would have been at that time. If we assume conservative population growth under a non-contracepting society like it would have been, a society excited about multiplying, like, in fact, if we just take the population growth that is occurring today in the country of Somalia, that would have brought the number of people 
at the time of Cain and Abel's sacrifice to 10,000 people, 10,000 population. And if we adjust that population growth to show that you can have kids beyond the age of 40, and they were having them up to 130, 230, it would be easy to see how at that time there could have been even up to 100,000 of people living in the land of Eden. And Cain appears to be the eldest of Adam and Eve because his name means acquired. And it seems Eve might have thought that he was the promised seed that would crush the serpent's head. So by the time of the story in Genesis 4 rolls around, Cain and Abel are likely, most likely, either 125 years old or around that age, or 225 years old. They would have been prominent as the elder sons of Adam and Eve and likely had very important roles in that budding society in leading their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren and cousins and all of their extended family in worship to the Lord at the gates of Eden, for that is where they were living. Another reason we can imagine large family worship at this time is because we're told that after Cain kills Abel, he moves east of Eden to build a city. Now, have you ever seen one man build a city before? <laughs> no. But Cain likely has hundreds or thousands of family members who move out of the land of Eden with him, and then we can see how they were capable of doing such a thing together. Now, the setting for the sacrifices that I've been painting is by no means new. In fact, many biblical scholars of the past have arrived at that same inclusion, conclusion, both Jew and Christian. In fact, the most important theologian of the early church was a guy by the name of Augustine of Hippo. And he painted a very similar situ uh, situation in his largest work that he wrote at the end of his life, his magnus opus, called The City of God. And in the section where Augustine is dealing with Cain and Abel, he talked extensively about how many of the genealogies of Scripture don't go from firstborn to firstborn to firstborn, but they go from like maybe firstborn to the fourthborn to the eighthborn. And so the, the, the point is, is that, you know, we're dealing, uh, it's not so much saying like, we only think that these people had one son, but there's many sons that, that, that they're dealing with. And we can't just think that because there's only one son named, that's all they had. In fact, concerning thousands of people during, uh, being around during the time of Cain, uh, Augustine makes his comparison with Abraham. This is what he says. I'm going to quote it. It's from the city of God. He says this. From this one man, talking about Abraham, in not much more than 400 years, the Hebrew people reproduced in such numbers that there were, we were told, 600,000 young warriors in the exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt. That's how many Hebrews? 400 years after Abraham. About 2 to 3 million. So, if in Abraham's time, when the childbearing age had dropped quite significantly, they could go from 2 people to 3 million people in 400 years, how much... More so, in Adam and Eve's time, could two people not have reached tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in 200 years? Now, the Jewish historian Josephus cites a Jewish tradition that says that Adam and Eve had 56 kids, 33 sons and 23 daughters. Um, could be. That could have been a true tradition. Maybe they had more than that. I don't know. But let's get back, let's get back to the text. So 
What were Adam and Eve doing with their budding family in the land of Eden for either 130 years or 230 years? Well, Adam had been restored in his office of king and priest by being robed by God, and he was leading his family in worship and leading them to create culture and take dominion over the world like God had created them to do. He was, he was showing them how to honor God and use their creative abilities in a way that would honor God. And like the first high priest in Israel, Aaron, who had four sons who led worship with him at the tabernacle, so here we see Adam had others help him lead worship. It seems to be his oldest sons, Cain and Abel. But one day Cain decides to have a liturgical innovation. Like the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire before Yahweh and were rejected and consumed by the fire, so Cain offers an unacceptable sacrifice before Yahweh, and he, his sacrifice is rejected. After likely worshiping Yahweh for decades, if not over a century, with the slain lamb as Adam had taught him, Cain decides one day out of the blue to make an innovation. It was not that the grain offering he brought was in and of itself bad. In fact, the second offering described in the book of Leviticus is a grain offering. But the grain offering in Scripture must always be given with the burnt offering or on top of the burnt offering. We see that is the case in Leviticus and Numbers and Joshua and Judges. It is always given after the burnt offering. The reason is because uh, the, ver the burnt offering was first is because it had to do with dying to self and then rising or ascending into the glory cloud, into the life of God. And only from that position could other faithful worship then occur. It had, you had to die and resurrect, and from that position of dying and resurrect, even through the substitute of the Lamb, now you could offer appropriate worship to God. To bring a burnt offering first was to come in faith in the substitute and being brought into the life of God through the substitute. It meant you were approaching God the only way you could, which is through, of course, Jesus Christ. Well, why would Cain innovate? I think maybe he didn't like the idea of having to go to Abel for his blemishless sacrifices, right? Because he was the farmer and, and, and Abel was was the great herdsman and shepherd. Maybe over time, Cain thought that the work of his own hands was simply good enough. He, he didn't want to be dependent on his brother's shepherding. He didn't want everyone in his family seeing that he's constantly having to go to Abel so they could do their worship services properly. You know, maybe he thought his family would have thought Abel and his clan was better because they raised the sacrifices that were acceptable for worship. So Cain comes up with a doctrine that God would respect his own work. Maybe there's some type of jealousy or pride issue going on here. But though he jumps through all the intellectual hoops in his mind and thinks that God will respect his new form of worship, God doesn't respect it. And that must have been a deeply humiliating experience, right, for the eldest son of Adam and Eve, this man who could be, you know, up to 230 years old, to see the Spirit of God accept the worship Abel led, but not the worship that he led. 
And it was not that Abel was better, that God accepted it, right? Or even that Abel's profession was better. It was simply that Abel came to worship in faith, as Hebrew says, the way that God had taught them to come. And that's what it means to come in faith. Abel's worship was centered around the slain lamb who would take away his sins, but Cain's worship was solely centered around the fruit of his own labor. And that is always unacceptable in God's eyes. It's like when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they first see their nakedness, and what do they do? They sew together fig leaves, right? And what did that do? Did that give them confidence before God? No. The only thing that gave them confidence that their sins were dealt with and that they were robed with righteousness was the sacrifice that God provided for them. And this brings me to what I really want to focus on the rest of this study, and I think we needed that context behind it so we understand what God is really getting to when he's talking to Cain in verse 7 here, is, is I want to look at six, verses 6 and 7. So what God says to Cain... After Cain's sacrifice is rejected, is this. Let's read it again. Genesis 4, verse 6. So Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Okay. Now, the way this verse is taught by almost everybody today is that if you do something bad, sin is at the door of your heart and it's ready to pounce on top of you and devour you. In fact, that's even how some translations put it, that sin is ready to pounce on you. I, I was looking through my translations here a little earlier. The voice puts it like that. But if this is how we should, is that how we should understand the passage? Is God telling Cain, to master sinful impulses that want to overpower him after he sinned. That sin is crouching like a demon, as some translations put it, ready to beat him up. Does that interpretation make the best sense of the context of what is going on with Cain and Abel? Well, to quote Augustine again in his book, The City of God, he says this. He says, the obscurity of the passage, he's talking about verse 7, the obscurity of... Genesis 4-7 has given rise to many interpretations as each commentator on divine scripture has tried to explain it according to the rule of faith. And the reason there have been so many interpretations is because there are two different ways that this verse can be translated. And what I want to do is convince you that the context of the story demands a different translation than the one given by the New King James Version and almost any other recent English translation that you pick up today. And that was something, I, like I mentioned, Alex has been pointing out to me. And I think he's absolutely correct. He sent me the Young's literal translation, which I think is one of the only uh, recent English translations that gets this correctly. So let's read the Young's literal translation of Genesis 4-7. Is there not, this is again God speaking to Cain, is there not, if thou dost well, acceptance, and if thou dost not well, at the opening, a sin offering is crouching, and unto thee its desire, and thou rulest over it. So here we see, instead of sin, the word is sin offering. That is because the Hebrew word that is here, 
which is hatat, can either be translated sin or sin offering. So every time you see the word hatat in the Hebrew Bible, there has to be a decision by the translation committee to either translate it as sin or sin offering, right? And most of the time, the context makes it extremely obvious whether it should be translated as sin or sin offering. In fact, the word is used about 300 times in the Old Testament, and about half the times it's translated sin, and the other half of the time it is translated sin offering. Well, this verse, Genesis 4-7, is probably the most debated verse over whether hatat should be translated as sin or sin offering because people don't think the context makes it extremely clear which way it should be. And many of the great scholars in church history have felt that sin offering is the best translation. That includes people like the famous Methodist theologian Adam Clark, the famous Baptist missionary and Bible translator Adoniram Judson, the famous Puritan Bible commentator Matthew Henry, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, who published the most popular commentary on Scripture in the 19th century. All these men believed that the translation of sin offering was much better. The other thing about this verse is that the word crouching can or I think should simply be translated as lying down. In fact, that word crouching is used 30 times in Scripture, and the other 29 times it is used, it's translated as something like lie down, rest, or sitting. This is the only verse where some translators have opted for the word crouching, even though it never means that anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, this word is used in Psalm 23, when David says about the Good Shepherd, He makes me lie down in green pastures. God doesn't make us crouch in green pastures. He makes us rest. He makes us lie down there. So one of uh, the leading uh, Old Testament scholars today on the book of Leviticus and on the tabernacle and on the temple is a guy by the name of Michael Morales. And he, he also believes that this verse should be translated as sin offering. I just want to read to you his translation. He says this in Genesis 4-7. He translates it this way. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? If you do not do well, at the door, a sin offering is lying down. I think that's one of the best modern translations we have. If you do not do well, at the door, a sin offering is lying down. So why else would sin offering be the best translation? Well, notice how it says that the sin offering is lying down at the door. If you take the more popular translation and say this is sin then you would have to take the door as metaphorical, right? Like it's speaking about the door of Cain's heart or something like that. But if you take sin offering as a translation, then you can take it as a literal door where offerings would have been brought right there at the door of Eden, at the gate of the garden that had been closed and that had the uh, cherubim guarding its gate. In this sense, God would be saying something like this. If you do not do well, a.k.a. you sin like you have, Cain, there is a sin offering lying down for you at the door. And its desire is for you, and you must make use of that sin offering. Now, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see that Israelites always brought their sin offering to a literal door. 
the door of the tabernacle or the door of the temple. In fact, this is what Leviticus 1.3 says. This is about the burnt sacrifice, but Leviticus 4, that's talking about the sin offering. The same thing, they're brought to the same place, the door. Let's read it. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a meal without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will. Where? At the door of the tabernacle of meeting before Yahweh. So the tabernacle was constructed from the divine blueprint that God gave to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, and it symbolically represented the land of Eden and the garden within the land of Eden. To be in the courtyard was to be like in the land of Eden. To enter the tabernacle was to enter into the garden. That's why there's palm trees and pomegranates and cherubim all over uh, you know, the, the, the tabernacle and temple precincts. And there was only one door one could enter into the tabernacle or, or temple, the door at the east end, just like the gate of Eden was at the east end of the garden. The fact that the priests were to have an offering to be able to enter the holy place and even the holy of holies showed that they could only enter God's presence through a sinless substitute. And that is who, of course, Jesus is that sacrifice through whom we enter into the presence of God. Jesus, in fact, even says in the Gospel of John, right, I am the door, right? And we can only come through him. He is the sacrifice and he is the door um, where the sacrifice is lying at. The fact that God provided Cain with a sin offering at the door means that he desired to have fellowship with Cain, even though Cain had just messed up and tried a liturgical innovation and he got mad about it. He, he, he started to worship wrongly and he got mad and, and God's like, it's okay, I've made provision and, and, and you don't have to get mad. We, we can restore this, this right order of worship like I gave you in the beginning. You, you don't have to go down the bad track, Cain. Um, you know, uh, Cain, remember, had skipped the first sacrifice, which was meant to undergird all the rest, the burnt offering. And he jumped right ahead to the tribute offering of Leviticus 2. Well, because he did that, God presented him with the fourth offering in Leviticus, which is the sin offering of Leviticus 4. Because Cain didn't present his body as a living sacrifice through a substitute, he would need to offer that sin offering. And he could move forward in peace and reconciliation with God again. Instead of warning Cain that sin was ready to pounce on him and devour him, God was offering mercy and an opportunity to make right with him and saying, look, I've already provided everything you, you need, Cain. You know, just make use of it. Rule over the sin offering that's given at the door. Well, what about the phrase, its desire will be for you? Some people think that is a reference of Abel's desire being for Cain and that Cain needed to rule over Abel. I don't think that makes sense. I think with others that this is referring to the desire of the sin offering itself. The sin offering's desire is for you, Cain. To rule over it would mean to exercise dominion over it, to take hold of it, to bind it, and to offer it as a sacrifice. God is essentially saying this, Cain, why has your countenance fallen? Lift your eyes up. Behold, even though you have sinned, there is a sin offering lying down and waiting for you at my door. It desires to be your sin offering. It desires to take the punishment that you deserve. So lift up your countenance. Take hold of the offering and begin to worship properly again. That's what God is pleading with Cain here. 
That is God's heart in this story. He's giving him a way out of temptation, right? He's giving him a way out of the rage that he has developed for his brother. God always wants to lead us out of our temptations. He always wants to deliver us from evil. He always wants to provide a way of escape out of, you know, uh, things where we might be tempted to do something really bad. He always wants to nip sin in the bud so it doesn't grow into something bigger. And the way that he does that is he presents us with a picture of Jesus. He shows us the provision at the cross that he has already provided. God wants to lead us there to see the provision he has made. He wants us to behold the Lamb of God. And when we do mess up, when we do sin, when we are disobedient to God like Cain was and how he was worshiping in an unfaithful way, he wants us to not have a downcast countenance. Instead, he wants us to look up. He wants us to take hold of Jesus and... He wants us to move in freedom from there, right? So we don't have to take our frustration out on our brothers and sisters like Cain does. The sin offering's desire is for Cain. You know that word desire is only used three times in the Bible. It's first used of Eve's desire for Adam. It's used here of the sin offering's desire for Cain. And then later it's used in the Song of Songs of... Jesus' desire for the bride. In other words, the other two uses of this word have to do with the deep, loving desire of, the, of a spouse, whether Eve for Adam or whether Jesus for the bride of Christ. Well, God tells Cain that this is the type of desire the sin offering has for him. This is the type of desire the sin offering has for the sinner. He is painting a picture of Christ's great love and desire for us even in the midst of our sin. That God demonstrated his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me quote that passage from Song of Songs. Song of Songs 7.10. The bride sings, I am my beloved's. And his desire is toward me. Jesus' desire is toward us. Now it took the bride quite a while to come to that realization in the Song of Songs. But once she did, it changed everything about her life. And from that moment on, we read in the Song of Songs that this bride who we find in chapter 1 of Song of Songs, who's burned out from ministry in the vineyards, and who has taken a long sabbatical, she's finally ready to go back in the vineyards and go to work with Jesus again, to be used by him again. Well, that was God's invitation to Cain. He wanted him to be continue to be one of his workers in the vineyard. He said, hey, I got the sin offering for you. Just go have another service, and I'll respect it. Right? But Cain wasn't receptive of the desire of the sin offering like the bride in the song. But those who do receive the desire of Christ, right, 
That's where we find our transformation. We can be like John in the Gospels, knowing that we are the disciple whom Jesus loved, whose desire is for us, who loves us with an everlasting love, that just as the Father loves Jesus in the same manner, Jesus loves us. We can be like David, understanding the intensity of the desire that God in Christ has for us. When David sang in Psalm 139, verse 17, he said this, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Let's think about that for a moment. He describes God's thoughts towards him two ways. First, they are precious. They are prized. They are esteemed. There is no thought that is just a mediocre thought toward me. Every thought that God has towards you is worthy to be framed in a frame of gold, to be meditated on the rest of your life. Then he says that those precious and prized thoughts are more in number than the sand. That's a way of saying they're infinite, right? Some scientists have estimated that there are seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand on earth. God's thoughts toward us are more than that. We can't conceive an amount like that. One scientist said you could, if, if, you, uh, if, if this parking lot out here was filled with sand, you could spend 10,000 years, 24 hours a day, counting the sand, and you still would barely be making a dent in the sand in just that parking lot. Well, God has many more thoughts than just that for you, right? We can spend the rest of our lives pondering the thoughts of God toward us and still only be looking at a tiny fraction of his affection. We can look at our identity of who we are in Christ and, and all the precious promises in Scripture and still never really plumb the depths of how much he loves us. We are his prized treasure. We are his bride. And his thoughts are amazing toward us, right? He loves us so much that he laid down his life for us. And that's what God was trying to show Cain. Now think of the bride early in the song when she was lifeless, staying in her bread. I think that's in Song of Songs chapter 4. What was Christ doing with this woman, this bride who was lazy, lackadaisical, staying inside on her bed? We find him knocking at her door. We find him stretching his hand through the lock in the door. His desire was fully for her even in her lackadaisical sin. His desire was infinitely stronger than her then the desire of sin was for her. And the more we are receptive to God's burning love and desire towards us, the more we live victoriously over sin, right? The less we will have a downcast countenance. God comes to us when we sin like he came to Cain. He comes with words of grace. He comes inviting us to repentance. He comes inviting us to receive a provision that he has already made for us. He doesn't want us to continue to go down the path of sin. He wants us to go down the path of restoration. He said, Cain, a sin offering is lying down, resting at the gate, resting at the door. And its desire, its burning love is for you. So let me try to summarize what we've been looking at. You know, this is the first mention of that word hatat. It's the first mention of the word sin in the Bible. And it's interesting because it shouldn't be translated sin. 
but it should be translated as sin solution, the sin offering. Sin offering in Scripture comes before sin. In fact, the book of Revelation says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. The provision for humanity's sin has always been available for humanity from day one. You know, Jesus, we, we can just think about this in light of redemption, right? When did the cross happen? 2,000 years ago, right? That's when Jesus has already made provision for you. And that desire of the crucified one is always for us. The Bible says that God desires that all men come to repentance and that he is not willing that one man perish. Jesus has made a way of escape for us from the consequence of our sin. He gave himself for us. He is the sacrifice for our sin. He is the door to the garden of life. He, he, the only question is whether we will rule over that provision like God invites us to. Meaning, will we receive the gift and begin to walk in the manner that God desires us to walk? Sin offering is always at the gate. The gift is always given. And those who receive the abundance of life and that gift of righteousness will begin to reign in life. They will begin to have their, their family worship restored instead of destroyed like, like Cain did, who rejected it. They will not treat their brothers with contempt like Cain. They will not seek to move away from the presence of God like Cain. No, they will take a stand in the grace of God and every day lift up their countenance to see the sin offering, the provision that already lies at the door for them. They will see that they can have fellowship with God and it is solely through the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses them from all their sin and they will rejoice, right? So I want to give my own paraphrase of this verse as I get ready to close here. I think we have a, a slide for this. This is how my own paraphrase of Genesis 4, 6 to 7. If I was writing a Bible paraphrase, I'd write something like this. Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you upset? And why is your face downcast? You know that if you had offered by faith in the way I had taught you, you would have been accepted. Well, there is still good news for you. Though you have not done well and have not offered the burnt offering as proper worship, there is a sin offering that is lying down at the garden door. It desires to be your sin offering. It desires to cover your sin. So go ahead and make use of it. Lift up your face. See your salvation and move on from your shame. Now we know, right, if you read the rest of Genesis 4, that Cain doesn't make use of it, right? I imagine his pride and his ego and his rage got too much in the way. Instead of killing the sin substitute, he killed his brother. But even after that sin of murder, you know God's desire was still for Cain? God still loved Cain. In fact, we're told that he put a mark on Cain so nobody else would kill Cain. So we need to believe that the sin offering of Christ is that great, that it is always available no matter how far down the mountain of sin you have slid. And run to the cross and grab hold of it even 
when you're angry, even when you're downcast in soul, for that is the only place you will find healing. That is the only place you will find restoration. <coughs> that is the only place you will rejoice forevermore. Amen? So I just want you to think about that, to ponder that, and to say, man, have there been ways in which I have had not faith-filled worship to God, where, where, I've, where I've been faithless, where I've been heading down the, the wrong path, where I've innovated things and, and, and tried to, you know, connive with God uh, in my own, my own flesh like Cain did. Well, don't be downcast. Look to Jesus. Grab hold of Jesus. Worship Jesus. Honor Jesus. You know, uh, and all that sin that so easily entangles you, laid at the feet of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have always had provision for our sin, even from day one, from the day Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Lord, you provided. You provided for them. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the Lamb who is slain from the foundation of the world. So may we, we build our lives upon the rock of your salvation. May we build our lives upon the rock of your word. Lord, and whenever we do make a mistake, Lord, I thank you you're always there encouraging us that we can get up, that we can grab hold of Jesus, and that we can continue to march forward. I just thank you for that. Thank you that you, um, thank you for your great love for us, Lord, as we've seen tonight. Thank you that you're, your life resides in us, and thank you that we can move uh, outside of these four uh, walls today, encouraged in grace and in power, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, if anyone needs prayer, uh, stick around. would love to pray with you. Otherwise, just one uh, more announcement. Um, I, I mentioned the Valentine's Couples Dinner uh, that's coming up on the February 11th, uh, and just... Uh, I'll, I'll make more announcements of this, of course, on Sunday, but there will be child care available for that. There will be uh, games for that. So there's going to be sign-ups for that Wednesday night, Sundays. Just talk to Letty if you haven't signed up already, and we'll make sure to, to get on with that. Amen? Amen? All right, well, God bless you. God love you. Let's go out these doors with the message of the gospel. Amen?